bow our heads in prayer. O Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us that as we turn our eyes and our minds to your words, Lord, you will shape our hearts and our wills in accordance to the likeness of Christ Jesus. We surrender all this into your hands, Lord, inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And we ask, Lord, that you bind up the words of a man to fall to the ground and that your words and your words alone remain in our hearts to shape us to be like Christ. We ask and pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Last week, I was talking about Christian rights and freedoms, and uh, the issue I addressed at the time were three questions. Uh, are people free to do whatever they want to? Are people free to do whatever they want to with their body? And uh, finally, what is the principle that we ought to do uh, in terms of our actions? Uh, this particular Sunday, uh, based on our reading uh, on the on the uh, lectionary, or rather in terms of our Bible readings to this time, we're journeying through the, the, the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, written to the Corinthian church. And uh, I had a tough uh, decision. It was either to talk about um, uh, men and women in the, in the household and the order of men and women, which is a very sensitive topic, or to talk about food. Uh, so I thought maybe talk about food lah, since I'm in Penang, you know, food cap food capital of the world. <laughs> and so uh, it's still about Christian rights and freedoms, but in particular, Paul is addressing a very very sensitive area about uh, food uh, offered up to idols, and it's a difficult word to translate because it's an unusual term. It says idol food or idol feasts. Or, fee, uh, or food sacrificed up to idols. So that's uh, partly what the text is talking about, but I, I need to explain a little bit further. Today I'm going to go through some text from chapter 8 all the way up to 11 verse 1. Because chapter 8, 9, uh, 10, all the way up to 11 verse 1 really talk about this food, this food issue. So you can't read one or certain portions without actually trying to understand it a little bit further. But I'm not only going to do that, I'm also going to expand it a little bit further. Now, uh, I apologize ahead of time if you, if you feel that the, the slides are very busy with words, uh, but one of the reasons that I'm putting more text in is because at our 11 a.m. service, we have a group of people now joining us. Uh, they sit in the first three rows on the right-hand side and they sign language. They do signing. And one of the things they ask me is, uh, if you can, please project up words, uh, because words they can read. Uh, pictures have to be explained, and they, lo they lose that in the translation. So it's a little bit busy. Forgive me for that. Uh, but you can refer to your text, uh, especially since it'll be a, bit, a lot clearer there. Okay, so what, what are the issues that we have on hand? Now, uh, we have to remember uh, that in Acts chapter 15, there was a conflict that was raised up where uh, a group of Pharisees uh, who had now become Christian uh, had gone to certain cities where Paul was uh, preaching. And they were telling these people, no, 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 you, you Gentiles, if you want to be Christian, you ha first have to be a Jew. 
you have to get circumcised, you have to observe all the Jewish laws and all that stuff and, uh, and become a Jew, essentially. And so Paul, together with Barnabas, traveled to the Jerusalem Council and they talked about that. And uh, the eventual answer that came out from this first conflict in that early Jerusalem church were a couple of things. One is, uh, no, they don't need to be circumcised. They, in other words, they don't have to become a Jew in order to basically be saved. Salvation is not by the works uh, that you do, including circumcision, uh, but by faith. But aside from that, they also put in a prohibition. And the two prohibitions are, one, uh, do not eat food offered up to idols. Right? And secondly, don't eat blood. Okay? Or, or don't eat uh, uh, animals that have been strangled. In other words, the blood is still there both relevant to Penang. Because I know in Penang, uh, you all have a lot of food, you know, sometimes it's offered up to idols, but more importantly, most of our Penang karimi has got uh, blood everywhere. I'm not going to touch on the blood thing, okay, if you're, <laughs> if you're watching. Uh, that would be a separate topic. Uh, but I am going to talk about this uh, thing about uh, food offered up to idols. Now, so Acts 15, Paul had already... Uh, gone through this and therefore based on the Jerusalem council he would have written to all the churches or gone to the churches and told them okay uh, no don't eat food offered up to idols particularly in other words don't eat in the temples uh, in the in the feast and the trades uh, issues that occur now he doesn't do that once he also says it in Romans chapter 14 so if you're taking notes and you want to cross-check and refer that this is correct uh, Acts chapter 15, uh, Romans 14. Now, Romans 14 is one situation where he again talks about this food offered up to idols. And the conflict that occurs there is one where we talk about food as being what goes in and goes out. And you would recall Jesus uh, when he was teaching, uh, the, the Pharisees were talking about, you know, hey, your, your disciples, they don't wash their hands. They don't go through all this ritual cleansing rules. And Jesus turns around and says to them, it is not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It is what comes out from your heart uh, that, makes it, uh, that makes you unclean. And then there's a side note there. By this, he declared all foods clean. Uh, that, that's a side note that he puts in. So, now comes this particular issue in, in chapter 8 where he has effectively written to the Corinthian church an earlier letter which we do not have. Okay, we have Corinthians 1, Corinthians 2. But in Corinthians 1, he makes reference to a letter that had arrived from the church. And effectively, what we can deduce, uh, reverse engineer, uh, is understand that based on what Paul is answering in 1 Corinthians, uh, the content of what the letter from the Corinthian church to him came. It sounds a little bit like they were disputing this. They were saying, hey, uh, you know, food is, is not an issue. Why, why can't we eat, continue to eat in this idol feast? And so uh, the argument that is presented, and this is actually taken from chapter 8. Okay, we we do, deduce that this is probably what he asked. They asked him, since idols are non-entities, in other words, there is only one God, and if there is only one God, therefore all these are not gods, and therefore these idols are nothing. Uh, since idols are non-entities, 
And since food is a matter of indifference to God, in other words, it goes in, it goes out, uh, it's not what makes you unclean, uh, therefore, uh, it matters not only what we eat, but where we eat it as well. Okay? So this is what they are arguing for, question mark, or rather they are making this statement. And Paul is therefore going to answer this particular question. And uh, so if Paul is forbidding them to go to the temples, to participate in these fields, uh, why does he do this? Okay, they're, they're questioning that particular uh, issue. Now, again, background. The Corinthian church, like I mentioned last week, uh, was in the midst of a lot of Gentile pagan religions, uh, emperor cults, uh, Dionysus, Athena, close to 20 uh, that I was reading from a long list. So each of these temples was effectively almost like a club, a little bit like a fellowship club to say that uh, let's have our feast. And not only these temples, uh, the, the temples were also visited by merchant guiles, uh, guilds, G-U-I-D-L's. Uh, so it's almost like you join this uh, trade association and this trade association had their patron deity and so many of the annual dinners okay many of the company uh, celebrations or any particular celebration they wanted to have would likely happen in the temple and the temple would pretty much serve food but it would be food that had already been offered up uh, to the idols now we, we have to also uh, answer this particular question, you know. Uh, if it became such a point that the temples were like restaurants, you know, in, uh, in Malaysia we sometimes see this as well, you know, you go to a, a temple and you see a vegetarian restaurant next to it or another restaurant uh, connected to it, okay? They are part and the same. And so it was almost or pretty much difficult to avoid being part of this, particularly if you wanted to be politically connected as well as rich. You want to have your kakilang, you know, your network, huh? uh, your connections, and so you would attend to this feast and participate in the food. So these Christians in Corinth who had converted out from their Gentile religions have probably lived their whole life attending these feasts and now are being told by Paul, you can't do that anymore. Don't do that. And they, they said, I can't brain this. I can't understand this. You know, uh, if food doesn't matter, why then does it matter? If, if this idol is nothing, you know, then it's not God, then why make a big fuss about this? Uh, but Paul gives several reasons. So here's where he goes into this. So open your text, if you will, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, verse 30. Uh, my first observation is, are we free to eat anything? But you please add that word, anywhere. Okay. It's not just, can we eat anything? Can we eat anything anywhere? Because Paul defines it a little bit closer. Now, I'm going to touch on this uh, four points, uh, bit by bit. So eating food offered up to idols, and most importantly in the 1 Corinthians 8 uh, section, it is food offered up to idols in the presence of idols, 
in a temple. Okay, in a temple where it's part of a ritual. Secondly, eating is part of idol worship. In other words, uh, it's part of a ritual already. And then the third question is, uh, what about purchasing and eating in or from Corinthian marketplaces? Now, wh- why is this? Uh? In the Corinthian marketplace, the place where you most of the time get meat, uh, everything, almost everything that was sold there would have been dedicated to some deity. Okay, so if you came from the sea and you had fish, uh, some priest, uh, Poseidon maybe, uh, would be blessing the, the food and making a ritual. Some of it would be offered up to the God. The rest of it would be given. Right. Uh, if you had meat, and in particular meat, so here's the very unusual thing about this. When Paul talks about this, he often refers to meat. So meat tended to be dedicated. Vegetables, nobody dedicates. Don't know why. <laughs> so if you want to be safe about this, be vegetarian. But meat, whenever it was a bull or, uh, or, or whichever animal, uh, chicken, all that, uh, would often be dedicated, quite often. The Jewish people were very clearly uh, separate because they had like a kosher area and they would not participate in any of these temple festivals. But these Gentile Christians who were formerly uh, pagans themselves, uh, they, they were wrestling with this particular issue. Okay. And you probably are wondering in your particular situation, uh, where am I involved in such of these things? Well, I had a friend who said, you know, uh, sometimes when I go back to my hometown, my parents would take me to the temple, uh, Qingbing or whatever, and then we will have a meal in the temple. Can eat or not? Okay, they ask that. Or sometimes when I go to the house and it's a particular uh, day when, you know, we've had a festival or Chinese New Year or something, and they offer up stuff on the altar and they put it on the table. Can I eat? <laughs> And, and, and these things happen, you know, your friends would, uh, you know, your family members would say, ah, that one, uh, we just put on the, take from the altar and now we are, ila, ila. Or sometimes they tell you because they know you're Christian and they say, this one, from the altar. So how do we respond to this? So, so I hope by going through this, uh, we'll, we'll respond. But I think also in, in, uh, in Malaysia, in this current time, the big issue right now that we see in the newspapers is the fact that when they iftar or they buka puasa or they had Hari Raya gathering, uh, some of them went to the Gudwara Sahib or they went to some temple or some people who are not Muslim went into certain mosques and basically celebrated iftar with them or something. So all of this, Paul in a way does touch on when do we or do we not uh, accept these kind of situations? Why? So let's deal with the first one. The first one being uh, eating food offered up to idols, in particular in a temple. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you turn with me, chapter 8 verse 4, says, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, uh, some people read this and, and they think this is Paul saying this. Well, yes, Paul is writing this, but he is repeating what they had written to him. So in a way, he is basically saying, you say, 
an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And he doesn't dispute it. Okay, he doesn't dispute it. In other words, it is true. An idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. But he doesn't answer it. He doesn't answer it until chapter 10. Which is why when we read uh, the Bible, I always ask people, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter that's triggered by an occasion, okay, uh, an issue or conflict. And therefore, when you read the letter, you need to read it from beginning to end. You, know, you don't receive a letter and just read the first paragraph, something in the middle and a little bit at the end and say that's the whole letter. No. You read the whole letter and you must understand that letter is written in response to a particular situation. Uh, so, 1 Corinthians is a situational letter in response to this issue about food offered up to idols. He continues, But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Okay, I, I've skipped a few verses, but you go back and read the whole thing. So they say, okay, we have this knowledge that these idols are nothing. And if these idols are nothing, non-entities, therefore any food offered up to nothing, therefore we shouldn't be worried about these things, right? So, so if that's the case, then shouldn't it be okay for us to eat? Uh, and Paul's answer, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Okay? Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Now, uh, that verse 8 is put in bold because that's the second argument that is coming from the church. Again, Paul is just repeating it. So the first argument is saying, idols not entity. If idols not ent uh, non entity, then it should be okay to eat. But Paul's response: not everybody knows this, and particularly if you have those who don't know this, who have grown up in all their life, right, uh, in a temple, then they know that these temples, although that they are, although they are non non entities, they do have power somehow. So for them, they fear this and they say, if I go to this, then what you're telling me is, it's okay. I can continue to eat. So the situation here is if you have two people, one person who comes with this knowledge and says, these are nothing, it doesn't affect me. And then you have a second person who's always been afraid about this, who says, hey, this is food offered up to idols. These things do have power. And if I eat this, then I'm participating in this ritual. If you say we can, I'm not sure. But since you say, okay, then we do lah but he's still afraid and his conscience is weak, in fact, is defiled. Because what Paul explains in another part in the Romans portion in 14, what is, what is sacred to him becomes sacred to him. What is sacred to another is sacred to the other person. In other words, what they believe of these things is true to them. Verse 8 goes, food does not bring us near to God. And so this is a maxim he teaches food doesn't make us closer to God and we are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Okay. In other words, food is neutral. That's what he's effectively saying in summary. There's a lot more to it, but in summary, food is neutral. Okay. Now, some people might dispute that. <laughs> they said, I ate that durian from Balik Pulau and it was heavenly, <laughs> raptured straight away or whatever. But his point is, food is a bodily thing. Uh, it's neutral. But what we derive out of the food, in other words, when we give thanks for the food, uh, we're remembering God. 
when we offer it up to, to uh, God or to a deity or to some idol, we are also, in a way, transforming that neutrality into something else. Okay. Then verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For even someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. What Paul is effectively saying is food is neutral. But what you are doing with your food, if it causes your brother to stumble, is sinful. In other words, if you are doing this as part of a ritual in a temple and your brother sees it and his faith is affected because he is not as strong in your faith, uh, then you have caused him to fall and since he has been saved by Christ's blood and you are an instrument to his falling, you sin. Now what Paul has therefore done, very similar to what he did last week when I explained about the, the body issue, you are free, but your freedom has constraints, particularly if those freedoms affect others. And what he's again turning around to them is, it is not about your right and your individual use. You may be free to do so, but you're not free to do this if it is not beneficial, constructive, of benefit to others. And so he he changes the question from, am I right, am I free, am I not having this? And, and he takes it from a point of knowledge. Right? Because the people who are saying this, you know, we have this knowledge, this gnosis, and because we have this knowledge, therefore we have this power which we want to use. But Paul's argument is, uh, that's not the proper use or ethical use of this power or right. He says, your freedom should be exercised in love for others. Okay? Your freedom should not be exercised based on what you know and therefore it is a right for yourself. Your freedom should be exercised in love for others. Okay? So this is the contrast that he's giving. Do I have a right? And so in our workplace, in our things that we're thinking about, what we do, I may have the right to do so, but am I exercising it in love? Will it bring uh, benefit? So when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Therefore, when we go back to this uh, question again, eating food offered up to idols, what is the answer? The answer is food is nothing but... Food is nothing, but I wouldn't do this. This is Paul saying this. Huh? I wouldn't do this, particularly since it might cause my brother to fall into sin if he sees me. And this is quite true because in, in some of my friends who, who come to me and I will say, they will argue the same thing. You know, Food is food, right? Uh, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, what comes out from you and all that stuff. But then I say, what do the rest of the family say? He said, it's very confusing because my mom and dad say, how come you eat, huh, but your, your sister doesn't? Both of you are Christian. Why one Christian says can, the other one say cannot? 
and this is the this is the exact dilemma that that uh, Paul is addressing. Some can, some say can, some say cannot. And what Paul is therefore saying is, for the sake of these who say cannot, don't. But he's also not fully answering this yet until he comes to chapter 10. So if you stopped and you just read chapter 8, you would think, yeah, it's okay, it's food. It's okay. It goes out. My only concern is don't cause my brother to stumble. So therefore, if I do this and there's no one else around me except my other uh, friends and they don't have an issue, then I, I can go ahead. Paul doesn't answer that. Not yet. He answers that in chapter 10. So then comes the second one, eating as part of idol worship. And this is where we go to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 19. So we're flipping a few pages forward. Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, you remember what they had written to him, right? They said, uh, idol is a non-entity and because it's a non-entity, therefore what we offer to it is nothing, right? Paul's response, he didn't reply in chapter 8, but now he answers that. He says, yes, correct, they are not God. But if they are not God, it, it doesn't mean that they have, don't have a supernatural power. They do as demons or those that are not of God. And so when you offer it to them, uh, you, what he says, uh, the sacrifices of pagans are offered up to demons. Uh, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Again, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 10 are in the context of these things that are being done at a temple. At a temple. As part of a ritual. It's part of a festival ritual that they're doing and where they're involving all these other practices. Uh, he continues. Uh, so, in, in a way, what he's saying is if you are participating in this action as part of a ritual activity that they're doing, then you are, in a way, uniting yourself with the table of a demon and you don't want to do that. Then comes this third point. Uh, can we purchase and eat it in the Corinthian marketplace? Again, uh, I mentioned, uh, much of what is being sold has already been dedicated somewhere. And so it's already been part of a ritual. Now, uh, depending on your, your understanding of certain, certain, uh, uh, certain rituals, uh, there are three portions normally to a sacrifice. One is the preparation. Uh, secondly, the sacrifice itself. And the third one is the shared meal. Okay? There are three, three parts in this process. Prepare the sacrifice, offer the sacrifice, and then share the sacrifice with others who are participating in this meal. Uh, there's also three portions to the sacrifice. One portion and this is the, mid, the, this is the Greek practice, huh? one portion we, would be burnt, right? Another portion would be distributed to the worshippers, and a third portion would be put on the table for the altar. 
which at a later time would also be given to the people to eat. Right? Some of you are like, oh yeah, yeah, in my family, ancestral family, that is also what we do. Why is this of concern? Well, because some people ask me, okay, I don't, I don't participate in the sacrifice, but I help my mother-in-law, or I help my mom, or I help my dad to prepare. Is that wrong? Am I participating in this particular ritual? Paul doesn't talk about it. Because what, what he's explaining here is a context from which you then need to take a principle and then apply it. Okay. So now he's, he's going to talk about purchasing and eating and then the last one, eating, is part of a fellowship meal. Verse 25, he says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions or conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what he's saying is, buy, eat, don't ask. Okay. But if somebody comes and tells you this one offered up to, you know, that, then uh, you might be required to not do so. Not for, not for your conscience, uh, but for the conscience of the person who told you. Question. Do you buy food that is halal? Oh, yo, I see you're sweating already. <laughs> that means I have to cancel out a lot of things. What is halal? What is kosher? As Christians, do we eat halal food and is that a problem? So take Paul's argument, right? If I'm invited to a meal, right, and as a part of a korban, they slaughter a bull there, right, and it's part of their prayers and all that stuff, then they prepare this and then they offer it to you. That's what Paul talks about in terms of participation in that meal. But in terms of someone has prayed already, they made it halal and all that stuff, and they sold it in the market, don't ask questions, just buy it, eat. Oh, a collective sigh of relief. Huh? <laughs> all the ladies who do the shopping here say, okay. It's also understanding what, what does it mean when we talk about kosher or halal. Muslims say they are allowed to eat kosher food in the absence of halal food. What is that process? The process in the kosher or halal is they say, like for the, for the halal thingies, they say a prayer at, at the point when they basically uh, kill the animal and it requires that they drain the blood. Okay? That they drain the blood. It's a, it's a ritual. But it's uh, not so much a dedication. It's just a ritual that they do uh, after which they then divide and sell the meat. What Paul is arguing here is eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now this, if you have your study Bible or your electronic Bible, you find that this link comes from Psalms. And that is the psalm that every Jew would say before they eat. Okay? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If therefore God created this and everything is good from the Lord, it is good to eat. You just give thanks to the Lord. And so you have some of our churches that say, wherever it comes from, give thanks for it, eat. <laughs> Sanctified, dedicated uh, as part of thanksgiving. Last one. 
if we eat as part of a fellowship meal with non-Christians, and so the situation is that a non-Christian invites you to a meal. Question is, where? Is it in his house or is it in a temple? Is it part of a ritual or is it just basically a location? Okay? So these are, these are principles which you need to take in. So if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions or conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I need to, to uh, uh, draw a little bit more clarity in this uh, uh, because the commentators say, if you are invited to a meal by an unbeliever, in that time, in the Greco-Roman time, and it was in a temple, you can be pretty well sure it is part of a ritual. Therefore, Paul's injunction to say, don't be a part of that applies. Right? But then our question sometimes here, you know, it's like, okay, Hari Raya, they just had the Hari Raya prayers and the mosque has an open house and they invite us to come in. Can or not? Or Chinese New Year, the, the Chinese temple has they and your village, the temple is the biggest building there. And they invite all the villagers to come, can go or not. And the answer is, as long as it is not part of an uh, idolatrous ritual, right, and it's a fellowship, uh, the principle would then be, uh, don't ask questions. However, the moment someone says, hey, that one, huh? <laughs> from that table you know uh, like, okay no thank you <laughs> or even when the moment you find out that it's part of a ritual uh, then pull back from it now Paul makes his statement I'm referring to the other person's conscience not yours and this is the conscience of a non-Christian right? or even a Christian it could be a Christian who's pointing it out to you but whatever it is uh his freedom is not being judged by another person's conscience. His freedom, he's free to do it. But he's exercising restraint on his freedom because he doesn't want to cause the other person to fall. And by far and large, I've generally found that most of my non-Christian friends, if they invite me, they would particularly tell me that this one was from the altar. Why do they do that? mainly to tell you this one here is set aside for the thing. Now, how Paul looks at it, therefore, is that it becomes a defiling thing when it has been part of a ritual of which you want no part of and you don't want to share a table with this other uh, group. It also means, therefore, that you don't want to be a part of a community that worships that non-God as far as we're concerned why, why is this difficult huh? it's very difficult for example when you have a Taoist priest who is conducting a funeral ritual right and then he tells you uh, who I'm not I'm not a Taoist I'm a Christian I don't do these kind of things and how then do you show respect filial piety and honour your parents without being part of a spiritual led by a Taoist priest uh, doing this. 
that's the tension that you and I are in. Okay? Uh, so when people ask me, what do I do? I say, I, see, I talk to the undertaker, I talk to the priest. And I say, uh, honouring father and mother, very important. Absolutely agree. We have commandment that says, honour your father and your mother. And so the only problem is, I cannot do it your way. I can do it my way. So if you will, will you allow me to say a prayer? Okay. But this prayer is you doing this and they are clearly being made aware that this is not part of this Taoist ritual. Okay. Or if you want to be safe, don't do it as part of that. Do it as a separate event. Okay. Your own uh, service ritual. Funeral services are, uh, are not for the dead. Nah. They are for the living. As far as Christians are concerned, the wake services and the funeral are for the living. The dead return back to the Lord. You, again, different religions have different ideas about what they do they, for others. The funeral is for the dead because if you don't do all this, if you don't spend this amount of money, if you don't burn all these things, they cannot live in peace. Different philosophies. So sometimes we talk to the priests or the undertakers to find out what they're doing. Okay? So if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. Again, Paul is responding to a part of the letter because in a part of the letter, uh, he has to address this issue that when he was with the Jews, he didn't participate in the meals. But when he was with the Gentiles, he would eat the meat that came from the thing. Why? Because the Jews wouldn't. And if he were to have fellowship with the Jews, then uh, they wouldn't want him to be with them because they felt that he'd be defiled. And then in that thing, he says, I am all things to all men in order that I might win them over to Christ. So what principles do we take away from this? One, Christians have essential freedom in morally neutral matters. What is morally neutral? Food. Food goes in, goes out. It's morally neutral. A hammer is neutral. But a hammer used in a murder <laughs> right, makes the wielder guilty. So Paul's argument is food is generally neutral. But how that food is used, where it is used, affects it. Okay. Uh, your behavior, their behavior, must be restrained with concern for others. So these are the two principles that he gives. Food, you can eat what you want, okay? and generally you can eat where you want, provided that you have concern for others, which means do not cause them to stumble. But if I may give a better word for this is love. Do you have love for them? Are you exercising your rights only for your own individual right, or are you exercising your rights for the benefit of others? Do you care about how it affects other people, what you're doing? So to one of my friends who asked this, you know, because she did struggle with this, uh, family gets together and then uh, Chinese New Year, they make the offering and all that stuff. The sister basically will, will not eat because in their church, they are told, oh, don't. Okay, and they make a big point about this. Whereas for her, she feels that it's just food. It goes in, it goes out. What should I do? And I says, you're right. What goes in, goes out is neutral. Food is food. 
but if your sister is affected by this and she's basically saying that we shouldn't, then out of love for her, do. Her question came back, but what about love for my parents? <laughs> because my parents say, why, why, why can't you participate in this meal? And my question then is, it, would it be honouring to God? Because when you participate in this meal, what you're also saying is, I'm participating in these other religious rituals that you have. Okay. Do you honour your parents by lying to them and saying, I will do it? Or do you honour God <laughs> when you say, I'm doing this, you, you know me? So it's a struggle. Paul ends in 31, going into 11 verse 1. Now, some of you might say, hey, 11 verse 1, isn't that the next chapter? Yes. Uh, and this is one of the things we, we need to learn about the Bible. The chapter divisions and the numbering is not part of the original text. The chapter numberings and the, and the verse numberings were put in at a later time in the year for people to find their verses easier, more easily. But the original text, the paragraph actually ends in 11 verse 1. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, he, he gives a specific example of food offered up to idols, but he expands the principle to say, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One of the things that I, I was trained uh, when we were doing conflict resolution is ask this question. In all this conflict, how will I use it to glorify God? And, and you know, it has the ability to break certain bondages and mental mindsets. Why? Because in a conflict, I am fighting with you because I do not get what I want. And the other person doesn't get what he or she wants. But when the both of them start asking, in this conflict, how will we glorify God? The focus shifts from what I want to what God wants. And that breaks the conflict. Because sometimes in humility, you may be right, right? What Paul says, you may be right, you have all right. But are you exercising this right in love? Are you restraining this for love? And he says, love is that divine ethic. Love is the giving of self. Sin is when you say, you give yourself for me. This is what author Tim Keller wrote. Sin at its base moment is when you say, your life for me. Love my life for you. It's a giving of yourself. The good of many so that they may be saved. Now, he brings about this uh, several thoughts. Huh? One, we do it all for the glory of God. Two, don't cause anyone to stumble. And we do this because we love them. Okay? Uh, please everyone in every way. In other words, be at peace with others as far as possible. But I'm not seeking my own good. I'm seeking the good of many others so that they may be saved for the gospel. And follow his example, his example, the example of Christ. My question to you, brothers and sisters, do you live a life 
right? Do you live a life that if you were to follow, you'd say, yes, I would follow myself? We always talk about, you know, who do you think of when you think about leaders? You know, Mahatma Gandhi, Obama, whoever. Lah. But why is it we never think in terms of me? I'm willing to follow myself because I'm willing to set the example. What is it about us that needs to change in order that we would be willing to follow our own lead? Let alone your wife, your husband, uh, sorry, your wife, your children, your family. So going forward, I gave this acronym, four acronyms, G-L-A-D. Okay. Glory of God in all that you do, let them not stumble. So whatever you do, let it not be a stumbling block to others. Uh, a, that all may be saved. And finally, be a disciple that is an example of Christ-likeness in all that you do. So in questions of food, in questions of uh, moral conduct, in questions of your sexual uh, inclinations, are you glorifying God in all that you're doing? If other people know about what you're doing, would it be a stumbling block for them? By the way you live, we'll all be saved. Because when they see you, they say, this is what I want to be. And if you are a Christian, I want to be like you. We stumble at number three a lot. Or rather, we cause many people to stumble because of number three. They look at us and say, do you call this Christian? Uh, no, thank you, man. He's Christian, but in my boss, he curse, swear, every four-letter word in the world he uses. Are we an example of Christ-likeness or others? So friends, will you go about and be glad in all that you do and glorify God all the way? Let's pray.